So the Kaepernick effect is the literally thousands of young athletes at the high school, college, and professional level who also took a knee during the anthem. And they didn't do it out of some sort of sense of solidarity with Colin Kaepernick and his struggle in the National Football League against all sorts of repression that was taking place there. They were doing it because of police brutality in their own communities. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everybody. I'm Eddie Glaude. I'm the chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University, and I have the distinct pleasure to be in conversation with Dave Zyron about his wonderful new book, The Kaepernick Effect. Uh, you know, we know Dave from his insightful commentary around American sport and his uh, amazing ability to bring uh, sport into conversation with our day-to-day lives and the political reality of those lives. But with this book, he has done something so special. And I'm just so honored, Dave, to have an opportunity. You've authored over 10 books. You've done so much work. Uh, I'm just so delighted to have this opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with you about uh, uh, this new uh, gem, the Kaepernick effect. So welcome, Dave. Let's, let's, let's get at it. I mean, I'm a bit, I'm in a bit of awe myself. I, as I said on Twitter today, I might just babble and say Simpsons quotes for the entire hour because I know your book, Begin Again, about James Baldwin is is absolutely essential reading. Uh, I mean, every page for me was like stained with teardrops. I mean, because I love Baldwin and I, and I love the way you centered him on the movements, the very movements that I talk about with the Kaepernick effect. So it's an absolute honor, Professor. Well, it's my pleasure. So Let's let's jump right into it because there's so much to talk about, um, and I know folks will have an opportunity to ask questions. Uh, and I know you've been on the grind. This is this is pub day, so this is this is the you, your baby is now in the world. But let's begin with a basic a basic question: What in the hell is the Kaepernick effect? <laughs> the Kaepernick effect. It is a method. And the Kaepernick effect is a language. More specifically, the Kaepernick effect is the replication at its most base level. It's the replication of what Colin Kaepernick did, which is take a knee during the national anthem for really two purposes. One, to protest police brutality and racial inequity. But also, uh, he did it to, to really, why did he do it during the anthem? He did it to highlight the gap between what this country promises and what it delivers, particularly for black and brown communities. And that's why he did what he did. And the effect of that was catalytic around the country, particularly among young athletes. So the Kaepernick effect is the literally thousands of young athletes at the high school, college, and professional level who also took a knee during the anthem. And what I really highlight in the book so strongly is that they didn't do it out of some sort of sense of solidarity with Colin Kaepernick and his struggle in the National Football League against all sorts of repression that was taking place there. They were doing it 
because of police brutality in their own communities. Mm. They were doing it because a lot, like if you're 19 years old, that means you were 10 when Trayvon Martin was murdered by George Zimmerman. And that scarred these young people. When I interviewed all these young people, it was really striking to me. And it was an educational experience. How many of them said the words Trayvon Martin before they said the words Colin Kaepernick in terms of Mm. outlining and speaking about their motivations for why they did what they did. So that's the Kaepernick effect. And if I could, uh, I'm just going to filibuster on this first question, I promise. Go back with the jazz here. But the other part of the Kaepernick effect to me is all about the summer of 2020. The summer of 2020, after the police murder of George Floyd, saw the largest protests in the history of the United States. And frankly, I don't think we highlight that enough, that in this country that has this tremendous history of social protest and activism, it was 2020 that saw the largest protests in U.S. history. And many roads led to that protest, of course, to have that those kinds of numbers in the streets. But one of those roads was paved directly through the athletic fields of this country. And that's the Kaepernick effect also. I started the book before summer 2020, but then when the protests started, I went back and I called and re-interviewed everybody I'd spoken to. And all these young athletes, many of whom acted completely alone in their communities, taking a knee to start a conversation, to confront racism in their communities, many of these folks had turned into street organizers, had turned into people who were right in the middle of the mix. And what actually radicalized them was being an athlete seeing the method of protest that Colin Kaepernick had put forward and replicating that to very dynamic effect. So let's pull back for a moment. And because, you know, whenever I read your column in The Nation, whenever I read your reflections on sport, there's always behind it a kind of attentiveness to, you know, the contradictions of the society. That sport for you oftentimes uh, uh, becomes a kind of point of entry to say something about the society as a whole, as such. And so you could have easily written a book about Colin Kaepernick. I mean, you've, you've told the John Carlos story. You've, uh, uh, you know, you've, you've been a part of, welcome to the Terror Dome. You've told the story about Muhammad Ali in some ways, but you, you used Kaepernick as a point of entry where sport kind of reveals something about where we are in this moment. And that seems to be, that that was deliberate, right? Not to just simply focus on the personality, but in some ways, what it represented in terms of the moment itself. Am I right in assuming that? No, you're absolutely correct. And one of the first things I say to folks is the book's called The Kaepernick Effect, but it's not really about Colin Kaepernick. It's about the people he affected changing the spelling of effect to affect. Um, uh, my, my eighth grade English teacher is very proud of me right now. Mm. Um, but that part is also very important, what, what, what you describe, because it's a point of entry to me to understanding the entire generation that's like my daughter's age. My daughter's 17 years old. And we have a generation in this country that is both more diverse and less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in the history of the United States. And frankly, after doing this book, they they imparted upon me a great deal of hope. Telling their stories gave me a great deal of hope because I just don't think they're going to settle for what other generations were willing to settle for in terms of how things are in this country. And I love the Kaepernick opening to talk about that because it allowed me to interview athletes. And being an Mm. athlete in this country holds us, even at the high school level, holds a certain kind of entitlement and privilege in most high schools around this country. And these were young people really sacrificing 
that entitlement, sacrificing uh, their place as being sort of like a captain, whether it's captain of the football team or the cheerleader. I talked to a lot of cheerleaders who took a knee who would be a homecoming queen. They said the hell with all of that. Because as Colin Kaepernick said, and a lot of people reference this line that he once said, as long as there are dead bodies in the streets and police are getting away with murder, uh, there can really be no peace. Right, right. So we're going to get to to, to that because obviously there, there's this line I was talking, we were talking, uh, you know, before we uh, went live, there's this line from the introduction where you said that this is a story about the changing politics of sports, patriotism, yeah. And the young people, the young people who are transforming the very marrow of this country. And, and so we want to talk about those young folk. And particularly, I, I you know, every chapter is powerful, Dave. But Dave, but to see the to see those young people in high school, those 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 babies, even, I mean, it's it's they don't think of themselves as babies, but to see what they went to. But we're going to get to that. But I, I want to kind of historically situate Kaepernick for a moment, although the book isn't about Colin Kaepernick. Um, what do we make, how do we think about his act of taking a knee in the tradition of sports figures inserting themselves in these very deliberate political moments? You told me about this wonderful uh, uh, conversation you had with John Carlos. Uh, talk a little bit about the con- context of the of Colin Kaepernick and the Kaepernick effect in relation to sports and activism itself. Well, there, there. That's a great question. There are a couple of ways to approach it. I mean, the first is getting folks to understand to really historicize this. You got to go back to the end of the 19th century when professional sports becomes a large big business in the United States. And like most big businesses, it had certain slogans that went along with it and certain ideals to attract people to the spectacle of sports. And those ideals quite openly were, this is the ultimate meritocracy. Sports is America. And if you're good enough, you can play. And so you're going to watch sports, part partly to celebrate the athletes, partly, frankly, to celebrate yourself as an American. Like I live in this country where someone can grow up from being poor and play on the field. And if they're good enough, they can make lots of money and all the rest of it. But there was a little problem with that because this was the myth of inclusion and the reality of exclusion. Because while you had sports start this way, women not allowed to play. If you're black, it's form your own leagues over in the corner and don't bother us as we make this money. And goodness, if you're LGBTQ, I mean, no place for you to say or do anything during these times. And so the whole history of sports is about this fight for access by marginalized communities. And so that in and of itself makes sports inherently political. And that's why we can't tell the story of the civil rights movement without talking about Jackie Robinson or the 1960s without talking about Ali or the fires of 68 without Smith and Carlos or the women's movement without talking about Billie Jean King. All of these things are cumulative when we look at the history of sports, because the history of sports is the history of struggle. It is the history of protest. And that's something that I think we should keep in mind. But then you have the very specific thing that Kaepernick did, which was use that anthem space, because sports has always used the national anthem as a way to identify itself with patriotism, partly for business reasons, certainly, Mm. and partly for just straight up ideological reasons. I mean, the national anthem only became something that was played at sporting events continuously after World War II. It was played during World War I and World War II, 
with a break in between to support the war effort. So when it continued after World War II, it was almost like a message to the country. Well, World War II is done, but the Cold War has started. And we are now on sort of permanent war footing. And sports is going to reflect that. And yet, because of the contradictions in the United States, contradictions like racism, for example, and all the things, you're, of course, we're all very familiar with, uh, that's why that anthem space becomes particularly a potent place for people to protest. The first person to do it was a track star named Roseanne Robinson, who was against the uh, she was a track star. She, and at the uh, I believe it was the uh, was it the Pan Am Games? Um, uh, I'm going to forget the, the particular um, tournament, but she refused to stand for the anthem in protest um, of U.S. spending in the Cold War and the lack of spending at home. And she eventually went went to prison for her protests and went under underwent a hunger strike in prison. That was the first athlete we know of to protest during the anthem. Smith and Carlos do the same thing, of course. Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, which was the catalytic political moment of my entire life, being in college, loving sports over here, caring about politics over here, not seeing how the two met at all, and then seeing Mahmoud Abdul Rauf. Um, of the Denver Nuggets refused to come out for the national anthem and explaining it by saying that flag may be a symbol of freedom to some, but it's a symbol of oppression and tyranny to others. And wow, the sporting world went inside out when he said that. I mean, you can imagine, particularly in those times before social media where no one could really express their support in a public <laughs> way. It was just an avalanche on Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. And um, one of the great things about what Colin Kaepernick did also was that it brought people like Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf out from the shadows right. where they were able to get some of their flowers and speak their truth in a way they hadn't been able to when they first took their stand. So that's the context of Kaepernick. The other context that's very important is 2012, the murder of Trayvon Martin. LeBron James and the Miami Heat decide to pose with hoodies as a way to show solidarity with Trayvon and his family and the fact that at the time, no arrest was even being made of George Zimmerman. So they do this pose and that in 2012 really becomes the first viral sports politics photograph. And that changes the game really dramatically. The presence of LeBron changes the game dramatically. Uh, being the most famous person arguably in all of sports, like LeBron, whatever people think about him, whatever people might even think about his political shortcomings, he bent the NBA into a degree, all of sports into accepting the fact that there were political athletes. Mm -hmm. Factor in also that there was a movement on the ground, which is always critical when you talk about political athletes. There always needs to be something happening off the athletic field. You know, that's what ricocheted in Colin Kaepernick's heart. For him, he did it in August of 2016, precisely because there was a Black Lives Matter movement, precisely because there was a national response when Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were killed, not only killed on basically consecutive days, but also the video of them being killed, being released in such tight company with one another. You know, that's the context where Colin Kaepernick said, no more. I cannot stand for this. And there's there's one more element to the context, too, that's really important to understanding, uh, to my mind, the depth of courage that's being uh, exemplified here. And this is the ascendance of Trumpism. Yes. Right? We already have we have the Tea Party. We have uh, the reaction, the backlash to the election of Barack Obama in 2008. But we're seeing since we've seen since 2008 every year consecutive rise 
in hate crimes. We see the intensification, right, of of deep white resentment fueled uh, by political uh, agents who, for you know, cynical reasons or because they're ideologically committed to it all, right, a kind of clamoring for an America of old, make America great again. So 2016 is this vexed and fraught time, not only because of the movements on the ground in response to to, uh, police killings, murders, lynchings, however we want to describe it, but also to the kind of, um, how shall we say, for lack of a better phrase, the white backlash, white anger is everywhere in the country. And of course, the country vomits up Donald Trump in 2016, right? So Kaepernick becomes the object of of all that is wrong, but yet we see him catching hell, banished from the NFL, loses his, his means of his livelihood. But we see downstream young people, not just simply imitating him, Right. But but actually using the sports, using the field, using the baseball diamond, using the soccer pitch, you know, as the space to give voice to this new politics. What are some of let's let's talk about some of those folk. You talked to over 100 athletes. Can, can, I, can I just come in with one? Sure, thing? Sure, not, sure. I'm sorry. This is one of those bad jazz moments where <laughs> I step on your note. But just because you said something that was so incredibly important that I don't want to let go. And that's not just Trumpism, but Donald Trump, because part of this story is, you know, Colin Kaepernick did not do what he did with any eye on the fact that it was August, 2016. It was election season. You know, his was completely organic because of what happened to Alton Sterling and Philando Castillo. That was the organic push that had him do it. But Donald Trump, you know, I wouldn't trust Donald Trump to explain to me, you know, what the Fed does, for example, or even our branches of government. But I do trust Donald Trump when it comes to understanding how to speak to the lizard brain of his followers and foment as much division as humanly possible. He has a talent for it like no one in my lifetime. He makes George Wallace look like, you know, Pepe Le Pew. He has an ability to do this with tremendous talent. And when he saw what Colin Kaepernick did for him, immediately it clicked This is red meat for my political project, which is about division and white nationalism. He got that immediately. And frankly, his quote unquote followers who often frankly lead him, we put it too much on as if Trump is pulling them when sometimes they're pulling him too. uh, They got it immediately as well. There were people waiting to hate Colin Kaepernick and to have a national figure give voice to that. And Donald Trump was willing to do it. You know, one of the ironies, you remember the coverage of that moment, you know, people were thinking that he was just simply, you know, the grudge of the New Jersey generals and the USFL and all all of this stuff. He was, but really he was doing exactly what she said, what you're saying, right? He was feeding, he was throwing red meat to his base in the way that he, that he is so masterful at doing, you know, in in such a profound way. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the other part is. I was asked earlier today, because this obviously what comes up now is the question of polarization and race around what Colin did. And I, I was asked something earlier today on an interview. They asked me, like, do you think Colin Kaepernick polarized America? And I was like, well, no, police brutality <laughs> polarizes America. Racism polarizes America. What Colin Kaepernick did was a response to that polarization. And the second thing is polarization of America, to me, 
is kind of a lazy formulation because if you really, really dig down into the polls that did take place, and there were a lot of polls that took place after Kaepernick did what he did, the polarization was not among Americans. It was among white Americans. I mean, black and brown people were like, we, su- we support Kaepernick's right to protest this stuff because we're affected by it. And it was really among white people who had to, and this was Kaepernick's, the, the genius and importance of what he did, is he forced people to surrender their blindness and mm-hmm. surrender the idea of, well, I'm not a racist, but you know, I don't care about police brutality. It doesn't affect me. So why should I have to care? Oh, hey, I'm going to watch this football game because it's a nice escape. He took that away from people which is one of the things that led to either the passionate anger towards him and also in some quarters, the passionate defense of him as well, because a lot of people, for lack of a better term, woke up when, and I know people in my family, this applies to them, uh, woke up when Colin Kaepernick took that knee and they were forced to ask themselves, well, what am I doing to make this country better? And it, it, it to me also, David, it, re- it revealed a kind of selective patriotism. Yes. Right. Who can be patriots? Right. And, and, and what I mean by that is that there's always this undertow right, and a kind of questioning of whether or not black people are really patriots. And what I mean by that is this. Right. It's like after the Haitian Revolution, right, there is this kind of overwhelming paranoia that grips the nation because obviously these people know that they want to be free. They can't possibly be happy no matter what we're saying about them. So there's always a question, given how black people have been treated, there's always the concern, the worry that they actually don't love the country, that they hate us, that the prospect of revenge and violence is always right on, on, the, on the immediate horizon. So there are these moments, like when you actually take a knee and it's, it's the consequence of a conversation, a respectful act within the within the sport of football, right? To take a knee, right? Uh, that becomes evidence, yeah. right, of the danger that you represent. See, I told you they weren't patriots. It's yeah. clear they're not patriots in some ways. And the tremendous irony, and it's almost comedic, that Colin Kaepernick started by just sitting behind his teammates on a bench out of disgust. It might have been a one-week story if a terrific reporter named Steve Weish hadn't peeped it out and said, wait a minute, there's a story here, and talked to him. And that's when it really started to gain steam. And then there was, of course, all this backlash against Colin for sitting. And then he has a discussion with a former NFL player and a former Marine named Nate Boyer. And Nate Boyer says, I have a great idea, Colin. (laughs) If you take a knee instead of sit, then all the people who hate you will see it as a respectful and even patriotic act. And then you won't have the backlash and you can start this conversation about police violence and lack of accountability that you really want to start. It didn't quite work out like that. <laughs> Not at all. So, so we've talked about Colin Kaepernick. We've talked about the historical context uh, that helps us make sense of, his, uh, of, 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 of this act. But again, it's not reducible to him. Downstream, there's this wonderful uh, opening to the chapter on high on high on high school, on the high school athletes, and you, in so many ways, describe this generation as, in some ways, the catastrophic generation, the hell that they have been through, what they've seen, what they've experienced from murder from 
from mass shootings to global pandemic to murders on loop, uh, that these are some very unique folk. And then you begin to lift up voices. You interviewed over 100 plus athletes for the book. Among those high school athletes, who stood out? Who stands out for you? Tell tell some of their stories. I mean, there's, and then let's let's move to the college and then there's the pros as well. Yeah, I mean, and, and just before I start, to be clear, I made a big point to make sure that there was gender balance in the book, precisely because so many women athletes also took a knee, and of course, women have been the the backbone and leadership of the Black Lives Matter movement as well. So it makes sense that they would also figure such a strong role in feeling that Kaepernick effect. But oh, the story that stands out to me, I think about this football player named Rodney Axon. He's yeah. the first story in the book. And I think about Rodney a great deal because Rodney was somebody who was so strongly wrestling with what he should do about racism and police brutality and racism in his own life. He was a football player on a team where his white teammates would use the N-word and say all kinds of racist stuff. And when he would say, whoa, 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 what are you saying? They would just say, oh, we're not talking about you. Effectively saying, you're one of the good ones. And we're talking about this person on the other team, or we're talking about this person from our class. You're, you're Rodney. You're not the N-word, you're Rodney. And that wasn't good enough for Rodney, not even close. And he didn't know what to do because in a lot of small towns, I mean, if you live in New York City, it's kind of easy sometimes to find a demonstration. You know, if you live in a small town in Missouri, that's not going to happen for you in the same kind of way. So Rodney Axon, he sees what Colin does and it just clicks. And immediately he's like, yes, that's what I need to be doing. And so he takes not only does he take his knee, but he upsets all of his teammates who frankly should have been upset by it because he was trying to make them upset by it. So mission accomplished. And then he right to, went right to them and was like, yeah, am I one of the good ones now? And just put it right back in their face that, you know, I will not let you do that to me. And Rodney's story of strength and then having to continue, even though he didn't have the support of his coach, didn't have the support of a lot of his teammates, but, you know, he did have some teachers who supported him. And I found that to be a theme when I talked to a lot of these high school students is some of them had support from their coaches. Some of them didn't. Some of them had support from their teammates. Some of them didn't. You know, but whether it was red state, blue state, small town, big city to even have that one teacher say to them, hey, I'm proud of you for doing what you did made a big difference. Because like one student, I believe her name was Nayla. What Nayla said to me was like, you know, the thing about being a teenager uh, is that the only thing you can do, be, the only thing worse than being apathetic in the, in the eyes of some adults is actually doing something. Like for a lot of these teenagers from, as you so correctly called it, the catastrophic generation or the generation of catastrophe, I mean, they do feel like they're in this can't win situation where if they do nothing, they're decried for doing nothing. If they dare do something, they're decried for making the adults around them uncomfortable. Many, uh, you know, make people uncomfortable, you're never going to have change. Yeah. Many of these, many of them were 16, 17 years old when you first talked to them. After George Floyd's murder, you doubled back. Yes. And they were 20, 21. Uh, what were some of the things that stood out as they looked back on their actions? Did, did they feel vindicated or... Yeah, I mean, a mix of people, a lot of different answers to the vindication question. I had to ask it as uh, 
Barbara Waltersy as it was. <laughs> you feel vindicated by your protest. If you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be? Um, but, but it was interesting. I had to ask it just because the range went from a lot of a lot of young people who said, "You're damn right, I feel vindicated," because I was all alone on that team taking a knee, and now I'm walking out my door, and there are twenty thousand people. And then other people who are saying, "I, I will never feel vindicated." as long as there's injustice in this country. There is no vindication. It doesn't exist for me as long as the police are getting away with murder, as long as you have, you know, as long as you have immunity for, from all the crimes that they may commit. You know, so there, there was a big range. But the one consistent thing, which to me was, again, just such a terrific eye opener, is a lot, not all of them, but a lot of them, when they took that knee as a high school student, they it was their first political act. They'd never done anything before. They were basically, you know, putting themselves out there for everybody to tease, everybody to mock, you know, and anybody out there who remembers being a teenager knows how difficult that is. But fast forward two, three, four, five years to 2024 years at, at height to 2020 and the summer thereof, they're street organizers. They're rallying people. They're getting their family members out to protest They've been fundamentally transformed. And why were they transformed? They weren't transformed because they loved this quarterback in San Francisco named Colin Kaepernick. They were transformed because Colin Kaepernick gave them a method and a language by which they could protest and affect change. Mm -hmm. Dave, there's a question that came from someone named Ricardo. Hey. And he asks, uh, Dave, what interviews that you did for the book surprised or took you aback? Uh, and what they had to say about the impact of Kaepernick on their lives, on his act, on their lives. I mean, I was so surprised talking. It's a great question, Ricardo. I, I was so surprised talking to uh, some of the students at Garfield High School in Seattle because I, I, I have a good friend who mm. teaches at Garfield uh, named Jesse Hagopian, terrific teacher, activist, author. And uh, Jesse was the person who um, hooked me up with them and their football coach. And people think of Seattle. Hell, I thought of Seattle as this very kind of liberal town. <laughs> and right. I know, right? <laughs> my, my, my East Coast ignorance. And assumed that, you know, the stories of them taking a knee would be stories of being celebrated in their community. And frankly, part of the reason I had that with was reading some of the local press on their protests. It was all sort of very bland and it quoted them by saying, you know, we need to do what's right and police violence is wrong. So I figured, oh, that must have been the general tenor of things. It was I used the Seattle Times as my window into how surely they must have been treated, which seemed, you know, very, like I said, a little bit bland. Which is a good thing. That's what we want. We want people to feel like they can have space to express their politics. But then I talk to them and learn about the death threats. I talk to their coach, Joey Thomas, who was their former coach, and learn about how he was forced out of his job for supporting the, his kneeling football players. I heard from Joey to Coach Thomas about how his tires were slashed in his car. I heard about death threats that were delivered to the school directly. To the school. I mean, Garfield High School, for folks who don't know it, that's the high school we've been talking about jazz and music a little bit of Quincy Jones. That's Quincy Jones. You know, that's Jimi Hendrix. They went to Garfield. And it, so it's this historical place and also in a city with a very small African-American population. It's a it's a it's a school that is in a lot of ways like a celebration of blackness and black culture. And so to see it attacked in such a way. Um, so brutally, I mean, that that was an eye opener for me. 
It's one of the consistent no where you are, no matter how supportive you are. If you take that knee and it's the and and people don't like it, they're not going to respond by saying I disagree with you. They're going to respond with something much more martial. It's one of the consistent themes of the book. It's a through line of the book in yeah. so many ways that the presence of the threat of violence. I mean, it's, I mean, just to write a sentence um, that Rodney, this he was sixteen, seventeen at the time is having to worry about his sister at elementary school. Yeah, his elementary school sister, yeah. And and that that makes me choke up a little bit when I think about it. Like like he he was he all he wanted to do was to start a conversation. And he did it in a manner of peaceful protest. He did it in the manner that supposedly as we're we're told on Martin Luther King's birthday is in the, the tradition, the best tradition of this country. And and yet when you actually try to put those ideas into practice, I think you, you find a very different result in the United States. And frankly, it says something about the United States, the way we can look back and praise people once they're either dead or lost their voice. And then when people try to apply that in the present, you see they're treated the same way they were treated way back when. You know, we were talking before we, we came on about Muhammad Ali mm. and say that, you know, Ali you know, his funeral is in June of 2016 in, in Louisville, Kentucky, and he was praised from coast to coast and praised for his activism and praised for his, his, his iconhood. And then you have Colin Kaepernick just three months later, not three months, two months later, take a knee. He was wearing Ali T-shirts. He said things like, we can't let him have him die in vain. We have to keep this going. And the same journalists, the same columnists, the same people with the large Twitter feeds who were praising Ali are now saying that Colin Kaepernick should be kicked out of the league or worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is it is fascinating, right? I'm, I'm, I'm mispronouncing his name, but um, Sajar in, Min- in Minneapolis. Oh, um, Marjan Sardar. Yeah. Oh, my God. He was he was angry. Yeah. But there is this kind of interesting juxtaposition. Right. He says as as he's confronting the fact that Minneapolis has exploded mm-hmm. after the murder of George Floyd. He says, well, they we tried to do this mm-hmm. in a peaceful way. And it's like damned if you do and damned if you don't in some ways that he becomes this um, interesting voice in the book at a certain moment to talk about the country's never satisfied with no matter what form of protest against yeah. injustice, that it, what form it might take, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And Marjan Sirdar uh, from Minneapolis, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting to me also that he, he's the grandson of Elijah Muhammad. And so, he, and even, or, or is the great grandson, I, I want to get that right. But the, the bigger point is that, you know, he felt a, an organic connection to Muhammad Ali because of that as well, to bring it back there. And it also, you know, that I was less surprised about because actually I went to college in the Twin Cities. And so I know that the, <laughs> the Minnesota nice thing is a, a big load, big load of horseshit, uh, pardon my French, <laughs> and there's so much racism uh, in the Twin Cities. And, you know, they hold up Prince and say, look, we're not racist. We gave you Prince as if no, no, Prince gave us the Twin Cities. Not <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, come on. You know, but, I mean, people, that's a whole other conversation. Dave, let, let, let me let me shift really quickly to to the college and the prose. Um, yeah. Both of those are really important chapters. I 
I remember at Princeton uh, when there was this day of action, uh, when the students at Princeton decided to take over Nassau Hall mm -hmm. um, and make their demands, which led in so many ways to the formation of the Department of African-American Studies at Princeton. But they were doing it in response to the football players at Mizzou. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things that you chart, right, is how these big-time college athletes, not so much D1 Catholic, they don't necessarily have to be D1 athletes, right, decided to pick up this political, um, not pick up, but decided to, to give voice to their own political sensibilities, right, to speak to this injustice. Talk a little bit about how once we shift from the from the high school terrain to the college terrain, what the difference looks like, what it looks like in some That's way. A question. I mean, I mean, the, the number one difference is that when you're a college athlete, you are effectively a worker for the school. And I know a lot of people sometimes center that on football and basketball. And of course, yes, those are the, for lack of a better term, bell cows. You know, that's what produces the millions of dollars. That's what gets the boosters writing their checks. But it's actually so many other sports other than those two. You know, they all add to a sense of university life that the university then pushes out there to donors, to boosters, to say, you know, fund our school, look at our terrific this, that, or the other. And we also know how some of these teams are, spots on those teams are held out as plums for legacy students to be able to get to the school. It's like, oh, you, you wrote crew? Well, terrific, you know, <laughs> you know, you know how the game works. Um, it's, it's, been, it's, it's out there. Um, but I've always said that these campus workers, and that is how I refer to so-called student athletes, because the term student athlete is a legal term conjured by the NCAA, so they don't have to pay workers' compensation. Um, these campus workers, they are both the most powerless and some of the most powerful workers in the United States. And I say powerless because they're not allowed to organize. They have no health benefits to speak of. They're not allowed to have any voice in their training. Everything is hyper authoritarian from the coach down in a way that would make a lot of bosses and a lot of workplaces jealous, degree of, the degree of authoritarianism that exists. But at the same time, they have power because if they decide not to play, as we saw at Missouri, one of the great tent poles of the modern neoliberal campus goes toppling down. And so at Missouri, which is a, a great example of this, you have students protesting for, for eons against racism on that campus at Mizzou. I mean, it actually goes back decades. I did a talk on it a few years ago and I was stunned when I did my own research about how deep these protests go and how long students have been saying at Missouri, we have a problem here. And it was being poo-pooed, even though the protests were big, even though you know people were trying to be heard, even though people were setting up tent cities on campus, it was just being poo-pooed by the administration. Then the football team in solidarity says, we're not gonna play. And the trustees realize it's gonna cost them a million dollars a week. And the very arrogant university system president and provost found themselves unemployed within 24 hours. Amazing. Um, um, amazing. That's power, mm -hmm. but not recognized as such. It is power. And getting people to realize their power and to exercise it is obviously not just a sports story. That's an American story.
So when you stepped outside of, say, football and basketball and, and talked to other athletes downstream, what, what came into view? Because some they were making, they were, the Kaepernick effect was seen in those sports, in, yeah. in those spaces as well. What did you see? What did you hear? Um, well, I, I heard that they believed that they could get their teammates talking, which a lot of them, it wasn't even about the community. It wasn't even about something they had to do within themselves. It was and, and not not all of them um, athletes who are black or brown. Like I talked to some white students who did the same because they felt like there was a racism problem on their team and wanted and really thought that they would be that by doing by taking that knee, it would lead to a productive discussion. Now, in some cases, it did lead to a productive discussion. In other cases, you know, everybody just got really defensive and then brutal. You know, which t- towards the people trying to start that discussion, towards the people who'd taken a knee, and in a couple of cases, and I'm thinking particularly about uh, a, a woman who I'm going to do an event with in the Twin Cities, named Mikhail Wright, who's just tremendous. Oh, wow! Yeah, um, yeah I, I want to do events with the people I interviewed. If it wasn't for this COVID thing, that was actually the plan to do a tour to the different cities of the people I interviewed and do events with them. We had a whole plan, but that's another conversation. But Mikhail found in summer of 2020 uh, that, and she wasn't the only one to get an email from her coach saying, wow, I'm really sorry I treated you so badly when you took that knee. I now see that we actually do have a problem in this country. And for a lot of these athletes, it was like too little, too late. You know, they didn't want to hear it at that point. I still find it very interesting though, that reality is, is sometimes the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate weapon to force some people to eat some humble pie. Yeah, so we see the difference. We see these babies in high school who have aspirations to play at the college level. We see them making individual choices within within the context of their teams, within the context of their communities, pushing the boundaries. We see them understanding themselves in broad terms, understanding their own power. We see that happening at the college level in ways, as you use, you use this one image at one point, uh, you had sports football players surrounding the school to keep food from coming in. And now you have them organizing to bring, you know, a presidency down, a provost down yeah. in some ways. Now, shifting to professional athletes, the pros, um, Kaepernick is not by himself. No. Not, not, Talk not, a little bit about that. Not at all. And first of all, I, I think when you get to the professional level, you get to a very interesting dynamic. I interviewed Megan Rapino, mm-hmm. who was one of the first people to take a knee after Colin Kaepernick. Not the first. That was Rodney Axon, the high schooler we discussed. Um, but but Megan Rapino, and certainly the first white athlete to do so. And Megan Rapino, I interviewed her, and you know she she really gets it. Like she gets her situation as a white athlete. She gets the importance of showing solidarity because it took some of the weight off of Colin. She also got the point of not speaking too much and making sure that other, that the voices of black and brown athletes were really centered as opposed to her voice. But at the same time, there's an interesting thing that's happened in the last five years, which is Megan Rapino, and this is through no fault of her own, of course, but in the last five years since she's taken that knee, she's become an icon. You know, she does subway commercials. You know, she was a star on the World Cup team. I mean, if Colin Kaepernick was a soccer player, they wouldn't have even let him on the World Cup team. 
You know, so there, there's the, the, the Megan Rapinoe story tells a story about racism in this country and about privilege in a way that, you know, we, we would be mistaken to not recognize. Kaepernick has his career destroyed, his professional aspirations destroyed, whatever potential he had taken away to do what he wanted to do. Colin Kaepernick still works out six days a week. I mean, and, and there's no call coming. Megan Rapinoe uh, is somebody who saw herself become an icon and succeed in her sport and have the opportunity to perform. And so that's a big difference. So while we need more white athletes, I would argue to show that solidarity, to take that need, to say racism and police brutality is everybody's problem. We also need to recognize that the stakes are very different. So this is so important. I mean, we know that Dave Zirin is a truth teller. We read you. Um, you don't bite your tongue. You tell the truth. And I want everyone who's listening to us to understand that the Kaepernick effect is Dave Zirin at his best. He's he's throwing he's throwing high heat, right? Nolan Ryan style. To involve, I just dated myself, right? Uh, but J.R. Richards style, even better, right? So, but but I, there's a question that that came from Charles. He says. Um, can you comment on NFL social justice messaging this season while Ka- Kaepernick is still not in the league? Terrific question. Uh, Roger Goodell, who is the commissioner of the National Football League and whose father, by the way, Charles Goodell, was the Republican senator from New York who first wrote the impeachment papers against Nixon and wrote a book. I'm sorry to go off on this, but I have this book. It's amazing. It's called something like um, In Defense of Dissent by Roger Goodell's father. And I I wrote a whole column about the book being like, Roger, why aren't you more like your dad? (laughs) It's a very personal. And I was like, there's no other way to do it, because that's what I'm wondering when reading the words of Charles Goodell. I'm like, how can you not support Colin Kaepernick and be the son of Charles Goodell? Um, But Roger Goodell has operated with the carrot and the stick. It's the oldest game in the world. Uh, The carrot has been allowing, and I use that word allowing very purposefully, um, a group of players to do social justice work inside the NFL, all through very acceptable channels. Uh, Part of the work has been allowing decals that say things like, you know, we are like they say things like Black Lives Matter and, you know, we're all in it together and people can put them on their helmets. But the stick is much more brutal than that. The stick is Colin Kaepernick not having a a place and not having a job. Uh, Other people, Kenny, uh, who I interview in the book, Kenny Stills, Eric Reed, outside looking in, no place on an NFL roster. Because Roger Goodell has decided that these athletes, particularly Colin, but also Eric Reed and Kenny Stills, they have more value as a ghost story to be able to tell young players you better not act out or else than they have value as a player on a team or frankly value as a human being. Because why wouldn't you want terrific people like Colin, uh, Eric or Kenny on your roster, particularly since they're good enough? Remember the meritocracy myth of sports, but which goes back to the 19th century, but also because you know, not just because they can play, but also because they represent the best of us in so many ways and that they give a damn about the world and want to do something about it. So that that's the stick. And the stick is also no black franchise owners, 
the executives and coaches, you know, you can count it on two hands, you know, and that's part of also disciplining labor in the NFL, which is one of the reasons why they freaked out about Collins so much, because the NFL historically has been so conservative. And there are reasons for that. The the non-guaranteed contracts, the fact that a typical typical career only lasts three years. And Colin Kaepernick, by just taking that knee, pretty much threw in, and this wasn't his intent, but it threw into question the entire dynamics of labor and power in all the NFL. Like who gets the platform? Whose messages get to be approved and whose don't? All those questions got thrown up just by him taking that knee. And in that way, I swear, it reminded me so much of of what I heard much smarter person than I once say, who said, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott was not about having better public transit and it wasn't perceived as such. And similarly, Colin, he takes that knee for one reason, but the perception of people in power, they take it to a whole other level. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I want to just for a quick second before I ask you this kind of summarizing question, because I know you've had a long day. I've had a long day, but honestly, this is the this is the dessert. This is the Napoleon. I mean, talking to you is is just amazing for me. I'm sorry. I got to well, thank you. But 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 there you you make this point about how conservative the NFL is. The Shield. You know, you hear players talk about the Shield and all of this other stuff. But you know, at this and you you write about you mention it. You use the language of woke branding as as a kind of shorthand to describe the stuff on the helmets the kind of partnership with Jay-Z and the like. But what we see in the NFL is very different than what we saw in the NBA, what we saw in the WNBA. What we even saw for a moment, I think it was a game where the Dodgers didn't play. They came off the field. They didn't. What is it about football that makes, or or, are these other leagues just simply uh, more cunning? Uh, What is it about the NFL that makes it such a difficult nut to crack in some ways. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I mean, the question of guaranteed contracts becomes very important and players feeling like they have the security to do it. The second thing is, I said this earlier, but it it has to be repeated that LeBron James really bent the NBA and then in turn the WNBA to accepting political athletes. Because if you're not going to accept what LeBron James is doing, then you're pushing away a, the generational talent um, in basketball, and therefore somebody who keeps the cash registers flowing. I mean, mm-hmm. having LeBron James in the league is like being a bartender on spring break. You know, you don't even <laughs> that good. The money flows. Right. Um, and in the WNBA, there are several very there were several very outspoken players, and it became currency in the league. And I've I've interviewed franchise owners in the WNBA who said. You know what? We we want people to know who our players are. We want them to know what they believe. We want them to know that they, they actually have a spine and care about the world. And frankly, that's in the tradition of women's sports going back over 100 years, is that it's always a political question. So in periods where you see women uh, step forward in society, like the 1920s or the 1970s, that's also when you see women in sports be able to step forward 
and be heard more. And so you have this movement in the broader society, and then you see that reflect itself dramatically in the WNBA. Football is a tough nut to crack. We talked about the contracts. Um, we talked about the fact of how authoritarian it is and how conservatizing that is to have it operate the way it, the way it does. Um, but there's also a great restiveness in football, you know, a, a restive giant, if you will. And our, our mutual friend, Michael Bennett, said it to me so perfectly, former Seattle Seahawk pro bowler. He said, you know, there's a myth that the NFL is integrated. It's not integrated. It's segregated. It's segregated between those of us who put our bodies on the line and do the work and those who watch and get to stick around for decades, meaning ownership and executives. And and one is one is largely black and one is almost entirely white. So the segregationist model that exists in the National Football League, uh, despite all the trimmings that they try to put on to say, no, we're not really like that. But the reality is that they are. Um, that's one of the things that makes it, you know, v- very difficult to be heard as a player because, you know, that can make a player angry, but it can also be incredibly disempowering. Right. Like, wow, I want to say something, but look, the GM is white, the coach is white, the franchise owner is white, you know, and I could be gone in a, like that if I dare say something, you know, that that's not necessarily empowering just because it makes you angry. And so I think it's, it's, it's the scales of injustice in the National Football League that actually makes it so difficult for players to speak out. So here we are, 2021. Yes. September 18th, you will have a march on Washington on behalf of the January 6th on Jan 6th. We have 18 states passing over 30 laws to disenfranchise not only black and brown voters, but college students, disabled, poor, low wealth uh, Americans. Uh, you have, for the first time in the history of the country, U.S. Census data showing that the white population has declined. Um, kind of deep anxiety has gripped the country. You have the George Floyd Policing Justice and Policing Act feeling like it's dead in the water. Um, you see Democrats; they may hold the White House, Congress. Uh, But we see the Supreme Court through a procedural rule, right, basically unravel Roe v. Wade. The arc of the book Mm -hmm. is that these folk, these young people, the Kaepernick effect evidenced itself in these young people taking the field, taking the pitch, taking, uh, putting themselves on the line for a more just America. Where do you land in light of what you see today, Dave? You're such a prescient writer. You have all of these voices behind you, in front of you, within you. Where does the Kaepernick effect land today on its day of publication in this moment? I land on this. Within 10 or 15 years, I think we're going to be talking about the United States as a de facto apartheid state. And when I say apartheid, I'm talking about white minority rule, Uh, not through legitimate elections, but through the very chicanery that you described. And you know what? That didn't end very well for South Africa. Mm. And the reason why it didn't end well was because people there, first of all, it was involved in the sports movement in South Africa, but people there were not willing to live 
as second class citizens. And these young people whom I speak, there's this effort right now to really, I would call it a reimposition of second class citizenship. And you have young people who I think are going to refuse to abide by that in the years to come. Like I said, more diverse, but more importantly, less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in U.S. history. And there is a collision course between Mitch McConnell's America and the children of Colin Kaepernick that is going to be absolutely explosive in the years to come. Well, there you you have it right there. I want to thank Haymarket Press. I want to thank Anthony Arnoff and all the folks behind the scenes who have made this conversation possible. But I want to thank you, Dave, uh, for telling the truth, man. And I want to urge everyone out there to to go out and get the book uh, because it's much more than a it's. Remember, it's not a book about Colin Kaepernick. It's about democratic energies from below that are poised to resist what we're seeing happening in the world today. Dave, I'll give you the last word, man. Uh, The last word is I once had a friend say something beautiful about 15 years ago about the historian Howard Zinn. Uh, He met Howard and he said, you know what? I never took a class with you but I always saw you as my professor. And that's how I feel about you, professor. I mean, I've learned so much. I I never went to Princeton. I never sat in your classroom, but I feel like I've learned so much from you and from your writing that to be able to just chop it up with you for the last hour is something I'm gonna hold close to me. Thank you. Thank you, Doc. Well, you know, take care, everybody. Thank you for joining us and go out and get the Kaepernick effect. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.